quite a few different things. We'll start uh, with the next one, which will be... This is question seven from the Catechism, and we'll do what we've done. Uh, I will ask the question, and you can read out the answer, and even though... Well, maybe I'm presuming that you wouldn't understand it. Uh, you might. I'm, I struggle with it myself a little bit, as you'll see. But let's see it anyway. And we'll, I, I, This is actually a very succinct and brilliant summary. Trust me. Okay. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan according to the purpose of his will, by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass, yet in such a manner as to be in no way the author of sin. Okay, you get two for the price of one tonight. Next one. Question eight. Let me ask you this. It's easier to answer. How does God carry out his decrees? God carries out his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Let's go on to the next one. Okay. Here's the problem with all this. This is a a statement that sometimes I might do, and it's actually wrong, and I shouldn't do it. And if I do it again, tell me, David, you're being blasphemous. Because sometimes I might say, you know, um, like Jenny there, I might as well pick on poor Jenny. When Jenny was going away down to England, I was saying, Jenny, no, don't go down to England, stay here. God loves you, and David has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, she, of course, knew that that was rubbish. The first bit was true. The second bit was awful, because it's God loves you, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. And we are going to look at how, this is a, in one sense, this is a very, very difficult subject. In another sense, it's not that complicated. We make it difficult because we don't like the idea of someone else having a plan for our lives. Now, I certainly understand that with any other human being, but we don't like the idea sometimes even of God having a plan with our life because we kind of like the idea that we're in control of our own life and we can sort of sort things out as they go on. Now, the key question here is a big, big, mega question, and we're going to, this is maybe a fairly superficial look at this, and people agonize about this and so on, but it is important. But the key question here is, why do things happen at all? Do they just happen? I've given you four options here. One is fate. Que sera, sera. Um, any of the children here? Who's here? Donald or Emma Jane. Do you know what language that is? No. Any of the, any of the, any of the adults know? Spanish. Yes, that's true. And it's, a, it's a football song as well. Um, when I used to follow Scotland, I used to sing, Que sera, sera, well, whatever will be, will be, we're going to Wembley, Que sera, sera. Um, uh, it didn't even scan, actually. But uh, it, it's fate. It's just saying, what's going to be is going to be. Now, that's why people read their horoscopes. Um, just, again, just a show of hands. How many of you here read women's magazines? Even the guys? No. How many, how many people here actually read women's magazines? Just out of curiosity. Okay? Thank you. Oh, you put your hands up louder than that. <laughs> See, do you believe that, Chris? That, no. I, most women surely do. No. Maybe, maybe even men's magazines as well, actually, because... But is there any women's magazines that don't have horoscopes in them? Because people, obviously, horoscopes are really, really popular. I can't, I can't think of any. Who's in? There is. Good food. Doesn't have horoscopes. <laughs> Fiona. <laughs> and Christian motherhood. Okay. <laughs> 
you know what, Fiona, that's a very sexist comment. Why would Good Food be a woman's magazine? I didn't say it was. I just said it didn't have Yeah, but I asked, did any women's magazine have? No, 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 no. no, no. Good Food is for men as well. We are the chefs. Yeah. Oh, no. And Christian motherhood. Okay. Christian motherhood. But most magazines and a lot of newspapers and people will read them. They'll read their horoscopes. Because it's written in the stars what's going to happen to you. Now, sometimes you look at it and it's just, well, usually actually it's just vague rubbish, isn't it? You will meet someone handsome or, or whatever. But <coughs> there are people who really, really believe this. It, it's fated. It's meant. That's one way you can say things happen because of fate. Things happen, you could say, because of chance. There is no rhyme or reason. It's just, everything's just complete chance. You, know, you just happen to be in church here. You just happen to meet that person who, who, who uh, ends up being your husband or wife. You, you know, there's, everything's just a roll of the dice. And there's just no purpose, no meaning in anything at all. You get cancer, it's a roll of the dice. You get rich, it's a roll of the dice. Second, uh, or the third one I'm tying in there, is human sovereignty. Where people say, no, no, we don't accept the fate, we don't accept the chance, we make things happen. I am master of my own destiny. And you can see a certain element of truth in that. By the way, you can probably see a certain element, it appears to be a certain element of truth in the first two. But the third one, I make things happen. You can do that to a certain degree, but your sovereignty, my sovereignty as a human being, is very very limited. And yet in our culture, people more and more, that's what they're being taught. They're being told, you know, you're in charge of your own destiny and you're the master. And, and um, even things like when someone gets ill and they get cancer, just think positive and you can beat it. Why? You're in charge. And then the last one is really the sovereign God, just what we, we saw in the questions, that God is sovereign. Now, that is, it was uh, John Calvin who basically said, this is one of the most dangerous doctrines to teach because it gets so misunderstood and so misused, uh, but it's also one of the most comforting doctrines to teach because for the Christian, it is the absolute comfort. Please go on to the next slide. Okay, I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm doing this very basically and ho hopefully leave a little bit of time for maybe people to ask questions or make comments if you wish. Um, God has a plan. That's the first thing. It's not chaos, it's not God making it up as he goes along. Now, you have to be quite careful here because there are some Christians who are beginning to teach, actually, God doesn't know what's going to happen. I remember sitting in a service in Strathpeffer Convention. I was a young Christian. I didn't understand any of this, but I knew that the Bible was God's word. And the preacher stood up, and he was a very well-known preacher, and there was about 1,200 people in Strathpeffer Church. And he stood up and he said... God held his breath while he waited for Abraham to make the right choice. Now, I was, my mouth fell open and I thought, no, 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 sorry. That, that's, no, 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 that's not what it says. And there was a minister there called Eric Alexander, and I hope to get Eric back in, and he was the second speaker at that meeting. And I went to speak to him after the meeting, and I said, Eric, Mr. Alexander, I couldn't call him Eric, sorry, <laughs> would never do that. Mr. Alexander, sir. Uh, yes, David. <laughs> I said, uh, I'm... You know, I mean, I was only 16, 17 years old. And I said, I don't get this. How could he say that? That can't be right. He said, uh, no, David. I better not mimic him. But he said, no, David. He said, it's completely wrong. 
I said, what are you going to do? Why didn't you stand up and denounce him as a heretic? He said, no, no, David, that's not how you deal with these things. I'm going to teach the word of God, and if you listen carefully tomorrow night, you will see. And he did. He preached a marvelous sermon the following night on the sovereignty of God, where he was teaching just that God basically doesn't hold his breath. God's not waiting. Because, you see, Christians who believe that, you know what they think? They say, well, God has plan A for my life, and he's waiting for me to get it right. But I get it wrong, so now I'm on plan B. Get that wrong, plan C. Now, at my age of life, I'm on to plan triple Z. Z, sorry, Z, that's the American. Oh, I've been infected. No, that, but that, that's... It, it's just God's plan is perfect. Um, let's turn to Psalm 33 and verse 11. And if someone could actually tell me what page that is on for, those, for the benefit of people... 561. In fact, Stephen, can you read it out as well then, please, while you're there? Thank you. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart for all generations. Now, this is important. It's saying that God plans things and he does them. Many are the plans in a man's heart, says Proverbs, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. See, I have plans. In fact, If you're going to be one of these mega organized people, what you'll probably do tomorrow morning is you'll go and you will work and you will say, I'm going to, I'm planning to do this, 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 and this. You may have plans for the rest of your life. I was going to say none of them will work out, but most of them won't work out. And none of them will work out exactly as you anticipated. But God is sovereign and he is different. And every single one of his plans works. It's not as though God has a plan, things go wrong, God has another plan. You know, in the Garden of Eden, do you think God was taken by surprise when mankind sinned? No. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. Before the creation of the world, before all that happened, God had determined to save people in Jesus Christ. God's plan is all-inclusive. Let's go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 11. You'll see what I mean by that, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything with the conformity of the purpose of his will. Now, again, there are some Christians who say, well, God plans this, but he doesn't plan that, and he just reacts to the other stuff. No, everything is, is, is mixed. The tiniest little thing. Um, John was showing that slide of the Nile. Isn't that incredible? That there's, you know, I mean, for me, I, I, would, I would love to stand there and go, this is unbelievable. I'd actually, what I'd love to do is follow it all the way uh, through Egypt. Just that pipe is the source of the Nile. You know what chaos theory is? Chaos theory is that if a butterfly flaps its wings in China, eventually it'll end up with a hurricane in Florida. Every single action that we have has knock-on effects and different reactions. You can't isolate them. So what it's saying is God's plan is all, everything works together for the good of those who love God. In fact, that's the, the next verse, Romans eight twenty eight. If you want to look it up. Um, again, if someone just shouts out to me the page. Romans eight twenty eight. Who's got it in the, in the Pew Bible? One. 1135, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Uh, That, again, is just an absolutely extraordinary thing that God calls and that God works everything 
for the good of those who love him. Now, that, that's one, one of those verses that you, you do take in context, but you've just simply got to say, wow, it's just incredible. It's God's plan is all-inclusive. Now, there's some really, really hard stuff in there, because supposing you do go to the doctor tomorrow and you hear you've got cancer, how, how, does, how does God work that for the good of those who love him? But then again, think of the alternative. Suppose you go to the doctor tomorrow and you're told you've got cancer and you're saying this is out with God's plan. God didn't know this was going to happen. God, this took God by surprise. Then that is much, that's actually much more difficult uh, and much more serious. Let's go to the next one. How does God's plan work? Okay, three things. God predetermines are the goals and the means. You know, what's the purpose and the means that we get there? He's decided everything that will happen, including the means to reach particular ends. So again, going back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What is God's purpose? God's purpose is to save people. What's the means by which he saves people? It's through Jesus Christ. Was Jesus an afterthought? No. Was Jesus coming to this earth? Was that something that, oh, the garden hasn't worked out, so we'll have to bring in the cross? Not at all. It's, it, God knew what was going to happen, and God uh, prepared the means to bring about his purposes. Now, what's important here? You see, people say, oh, well, this just means that the whole world is like a giant chessboard or a giant computer game, and God has already got all the bits worked out that is not the bible's teaching okay we have to be careful here because our minds are quite limited and sometimes there are things that almost seem to be opposite but I'm, i'm trying to give you what the bible actually teaches in this sense and one of the things is this one of the things one of the means that god has predetermined is human freedom okay now that's really really important you cannot turn to god and say it wasn't me it was your plan uh, have any of you read, or if any of you study English literature or Scottish literature, it is James Hogg, Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Has anyone ever read that book? Yes. One intelligent person. No. It's, it's an amazing book because it was really an attack on the Calvinism of Hogg's day. And what it was is this guy basically saying you can go around and kill people because God had predetermined that he would do that. You know, how can you stop me? Um, and it was, it, was, it was a frightening understanding of God's sovereignty. Um, go to Acts 17, please. And again, if someone just simply shouts out where that is in the Pew Bible. Acts 17 and verse 30. 1114. One, 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 Acts 17, verse 30. This is Paul when he's speaking to the, <coughs> the Greeks in Athens in the Areopagus. And he said... In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, I've just taken that as one verse. There are many, many, many verses in the Bible where God tells people to turn to him, where God invites people to come to him, where God commands people as here to repent. Nobody, but nobody will be able to stand on the day of judgment and say, ah, but... You did not predetermine me to be here, so it's your fault, really. God predetermined human free will. St. Augustine had a great saying. 
Command what you will and give what you command. Saying, God, you're a sovereign, command what you want. But if you're going to command it, please give it to me so that I can do it as well. Because that's where this third point comes in. Let's go back to Ephesians. That although we have free will, our will is limited. It's not absolutely free. Now, we know that. For example, it's limited by our nature. Right now, I might want to fly off to a very hot country. I can't. I can't just fly. Um, Right now, uh, there are things about my nature that I might want to do, but I'm not free to do. I, I may say, you know this, I think I'll just go out for a jog and I'll run up the law and back down again. No, my physical nature won't allow me to do that. Likewise, in, in, in a moral sense and in a spiritual sense, you may say, do you know this? I think that I, I, I don't want to do any sin anymore. So that's it. From now on, I am never, ever going to sin. You can't because you are limited by uh, your nature, <coughs> by a sinful nature that we have. And that's why in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, Paul says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And this is probably the hardest part of this teaching to get across to people in our culture because the greatest sin in our culture is not sexual sin or it's not even the word sin. The greatest thing in our culture is to say to somebody, you're not actually free. You're not free. And people are not free. Human desire... But this is Martin Luther's phrase, the bondage of the will. Human desire is sinful, and that means we are, we are chained. In fact, the Bible puts it worse than that. It says that we are dead in transgressions and sins, and Jesus even says, unless you are born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. So, God's plan works through particular means. God's plan does not mean that we are puppets. But uh, in part, as part of that, in that whole sphere, we, are, we ourselves are not sovereign. We are tied in. And we need God to intervene in our world and in our lives. And that, of course, is the record in terms of what, the, what he has done. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Now, this is very important in that thing. And this is where you get the balance almost. People say, well, if God... Is, is overseeing everything and nothing takes God by surprise, then he must have done sin because there's sin in the world. And the, the devil, you know, it must have been God. Well, God did create the devil, created him as a perfect angel, a good angel and so on. How did the devil fall? How did sin come into that? We're saying that God created sin. Well, it's very, very important that we recognize that there is no darkness in God at all. That's what 1 John 1 verse 5 says. In him there is no darkness whatsoever. So that does raise the very difficult question to which I'm not sure that I could give you anything other than an extremely heavy philosophical answer which would mean that I didn't understand it as well. It does raise the very difficult question of where does sin come from. Now the only answer I'll give is one that St. Augustine gave from the scriptures in which he actually said sin was not a created thing. I'm paraphrasing. But it was the absence of good. And in order for there to be free will, you had to be able to choose. So, for example, if you are a free uh, person and you're giving a choice 
but the choice is only like Henry Ford said about the cars, his cars. You can have any, any color you want as long as it's black. It's not much of a choice. Now, in terms of morality and in term, terms of choosing between good and evil, if you can only choose good, in what sense is that a choice? It's not. So somehow, in order for there to be choice, there has to be, you can use the various images, there has to be black and white, there has to be good and evil and so on. But the, Bi the Bible teaches us clearly, I think, that God does not create sin. You can say that he allows it. You can say even that he, he would use it or even use evil. But he is never the author of sin. And for me, that is extremely important. The notion that there is a God who, who says, well, I'm going to create this good thing and then I'm going to create that bad thing and then I'm going to blame them. You know, that's not how it works in the scriptures. But then turn to Acts 2, verse 23, because that's the second thing there. Although God does not create sin, it's not out with his sovereignty. In other words, he can allow it to happen, and yet he is so great that he can even allow the evil to turn out for good. Acts 2, verse 23 is an important verse. Um, let me read from verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Okay. Who put Jesus to death? Peter said, you say, you put him to death. You, with the help of these wicked soldiers, you put him to death. You can't escape and say, no, we didn't. But he also says this. He was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God knew this was going to happen. Not only did he just know it was going to happen, but God had planned for it to happen. And you went along with God's plan. Not because you were thinking, this is God's plan and we'd better do it. But you hated. And yet God used that hatred and he used that evil. He did not create that evil within you. But he used that evil to fulfill his plan. And it, for me, that again, I mean, the cross is the supreme evil in one sense. And yet from that, God brings the greatest good. Okay, we'll go on to the, the next one. Um, this is really to do with how God works out his plan. And the two things, and we're going to... To look at them both, creation and providence, obviously not tonight. Very simple statement. The universe and what occurs within it are the outworking of God's plan. Now, you can believe, if you want, that the universe is chaos. You can believe it has no purpose. You can believe it just is. You can believe that it's going nowhere. But it comes from nowhere. There's, there's no rhyme, no reason to it. And to be honest, if you are an out-and-out -out atheist, you, all, you more or less have to believe that. And yet the universe itself testifies against that. Because the universe is so intricately designed. Now, I've, I've said this many times, but I keep saying it for me. It's just an astonishing thing. There are 15 constants in the universe. The law of thermodynamics, carbon, um, gravity, and so on. If any one of those constants was even slightly tweaked, just a, just a billionth tweaked, the actual universe couldn't exist. 
It's not, we'll, we'll look at this next week, but the, and it's not the, the argument about evolution. The argument is about why is there life at all? Why does anything happen at all? Why is there anything there at all? Because the universe is designed. There's a man called Stephen Hawking who wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. I'm very tempted. I was impressed that Izzy had read um, Thomas Hogg, Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Has anyone here read, now I don't say have you bought it or is it on your coffee table, because it's the most unread bought book in history, but has anyone read A Brief History of Time? Colin has. Well done. I, I, I've tried. I got kind of, even, there's the, there's the condensed version of it, which is an even briefer history of time, but that's all. Now, in, it's, it's a really difficult book. Really, just mind-blowingly going, oh, headache stuff. Hawking in that book, and I'm quoting from memory, so I, this is more or less a paraphrase. He says, the universe looks exactly as though God had intended to create creatures just like us. He says that's the obvious explanation. That's what it looks like. But he obviously doesn't believe that that is the case. And he said it would be very difficult to see it otherwise. And he spends the rest of the book, which is why it's so difficult, trying to say why that, not is, why that is not the case. And he's a brilliant mind. He's a fantastic thinker and a great scientist. And you think, why? Why did you have to do that? Now... The fact that there is design in the universe, the fact that there, is, there seems to be purpose in the universe is hugely important, and it's important for us in this. Because you can go out and you can look at the stars tonight and you can think, um, there was one of these disaster films on this week, what's the one where the comet's going to crash and so on, and how many comets have hit Earth? You, know, you can think it's all random, and we could be hit by a moon from another planet, or we could be, you know, it could all just blow up. It's all, you can think everything is random. And... There's, there's nothing there. There's no security in life or anything. It's just it's a horrendous prospect. Or you can look at the stars and you can say, I know the one who calls every one of them by name. Who knows them all. Who counts them all. And who at the same time knows every single hair on my head. The universe and what occurs within it is the outworking of God's plan. Back in Ephesians 1 verse 11 we are predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And Revelation 4.11, right at the end, last book in the Bible, just says this. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Okay, let's just go on to the last one. Just, I want to raise um, some questions and I'll raise them, and maybe we'll have an opportunity to discuss them um, next Sunday, even if you want, but I'm going to give you an opportunity just now as well. Okay, what's the dangers of this teaching? The dangers is that we misunderstand it. The dangers is that we get it out of balance. The danger is that we become fatalist. The danger is that we misunderstand the nature of God. The danger is that we make God the, the author of, of sin, which he... Clearly is not. There are lots and lots of kinds of dangers in this teaching. What's the comfort of this teaching? Well, that should be so obvious. It means that I know who holds the future. I know who holds the future. He's got it all in his hands. He had the past in his hands. It's very difficult. You know, uh, uh, a friend of mine who was a minister was telling about some friends in New Zealand. I've never ever forgotten this story of how 
um, some Christian friends of his were not believers in the sovereignty of God in this. And um, they were farmers, and two of their children were killed in a barn fire. I, I can hardly imagine anything more horrendous. And he said after that, they became believers in the sovereignty of God. And why? Because he said, if, if God, this is, this is horrific, this is terrible, this, this just kills us. But if this is out with the control of God, then life is hell. If God, if, you know, we, we have to believe that there is some ultimately good purpose in all of this. And for me, that's where the actual, the, the actual comfort comes in. Not in the idea of a God who manipulates us all as a kind of puppeteer, but in a God who is so great that he can even take other people's bad decisions, the devil's attacks, everything, and he can weave this marvelous tapestry so that even the most sickening and, and evil events can work out for the good of those who love him. Now, as I say, there are other questions um, that may arise out of this as well. And I've just given a very basic summary of what I believe to be the Bible's teaching. But um, we'll, if anyone wants to ask or say anything just now, please feel free to do so. Does anyone want to make a comment or ask a question? You're very welcome to if you wish. You don't have to if you want. Were you just raising your arm, Sarah? Or, see, be careful. When you... Okay. We will... All right. We'll leave it for that. I know. I know. I mean, I know. Um, someone emailed me just some great questions this week on on this kind of very subject. And I, guys, it's it's huge. All right, you can't put it in a box. And I, I, I do want to give you this advice when, as we finish. Don't try and understand it all and get it all in your mind. And some things you have to hold in a creative tension. You have to know. That when you get up tomorrow, you do not walk out the door and say, Lord, do you want me to go to the right or to the left? What have you predetermined? I remember once somebody, do you want a cup of tea? I don't know. Does God want me to have a cup of tea? <laughs> I mean, you drive yourself nuts like that if you start going along those lines. But equally, don't walk along the street with this kind of jaunty, I'm in charge, the world is my oyster and so on. No, it's not. It's God's world. And that's important too, because when we talk about the darkness in the world and the devil, none of this world is Satan's. It doesn't belong to Satan. It's not the devil's world. And if you're a Christian, you are not the devil's. None of what you have belongs to the devil. And ultimately, the devil gets nothing good out of all this. See, we worship a sovereign king. What, did the early, what was the confession of the early Christians? No, it wasn't just Jesus his savior. It wasn't, no one can say Jesus is Savior except by the Holy Spirit. It was, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So don't become one of these sort of, how will I put it, uber-Calvinists who, who have this kind of um, almost robotic view of the universe. That's not how it works. But equally, don't go of what, we, what theologians would call the Arminian route. You know, it, it, it's much, much better just to stick with the Bible, what it says in the Bible, and especially in this, not to go beyond what the Scripture says, not to go beyond what God reveals, but to, to, to have this faith that is almost a childlike faith. You put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. 
You put your hand in the Lord and the hand of the Lord of the universe. Yes, you will question and you will agonize and there are lots and lots of different things that will happen. But at the end of the day, you put on his shoulders. Remember I told you about this um, uh, program about the Mennonites in um, Montana, how to get to heaven in Montana. Um, one of the... Oops. Take one of these questions. Now you see, if I was a good Calvinist, I'd be thinking, is this the devil or is it the Lord? No. And the, the young guy who was leading it he was asked about, how do, you cope, how do you cope with the death of your father? Because his father had died. And how do you cope with all the troubles that you're having in this community, within this, this church? And, and he was talking about it. And he said, you know, he said, I, I think about it. And it's there on my shoulders. And it weighs me down. And he says, I just lift it up. And I hand it over. And I place it on his shoulders. Because they're so much bigger. Now, that for me is the whole teaching about God's sovereignty. You're saying, Lord... I am not God. I am not in charge. You are. It's your plan. It's not my plan. There's no plan A, B, C, D, E. There's your plan. Here, take it. And that's what God wants. That's what God has asked us to do, to place all our burdens upon him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're a sovereign God. We thank you that we are not in control. Oh Lord, we acknowledge, and sometimes it's hard to acknowledge this, that there's not one of us here who can say for certain what we will do in the next minute. There's not one of us who knows that we will live another hour. Who are we to make plans about what we will do this year or next year? We're but a mist whose life disappears in a moment. But we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are created in your image. We are created for your glory. That is your plan. And your plan never, ever fails. So we bless you, O Lord, that you have brought us to this place and that you teach us about your lordship. May we know and apply and understand it to ourselves. We ask for anyone here who as yet doesn't know you, that they would be drawn to you. Again, we pray for the Christianity Explorer on Wednesday, that that would go well. Pray for all the other things that are involved, but most of all, we just pray that each of us, whatever our circumstances, would not only acknowledge that you are sovereign, but that you are good and the giver of good and that you work all things for the good of those who love you. Teach us to love you. In your name, amen.